There is an outline for the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That the gospel would move beyond being Jewish and would really invade Gentile territories. And that in the end, the church would be made up of not only Jews, which up to this point, up to chapter 10, it has been Jews that have been getting saved. The Samaritans who are Jewish-like, they kept the laws, they ate kosher meals, they were, they were Jewish in an aspect. There were differences between the Jews and the Samaritans, but they were more similar to Jews than they were to Gentiles for sure. And now we get the very first Gentile to be saved. And I love that it's a centurion. I love that it's a tough man who's involved with tough men. Because sometimes as tough men, we feel like, you know what? The gospel's for sissy kind of men. It isn't for tough men. But I love the first guy that comes to Christ is a centurion who has to handle things and take care of things and how he has a heart for God. And you can be a strong man that has a heart for God. And when you do, there's a strong influence in the lives of those that are around you when you are living wholeheartedly for him. And we find that here in our study today. Now, the title of our message today is God responds to the heart of a Gentile. We've got a Gentile that's not saved, but he begins to move towards God and God responds to that. Now, there's no doubt that God drew him, but God responded to it. The subtitle that I have is a centurion's faith. Now, in Acts chapter 10, we see a significant shift from the early church to include Gentiles. Up until this point, it's been all Jewish people. Uh, we were partially, uh, who were partially Jewish and descendants talking about the Samaritans. Um, now this goes on to create a problem for the early church because up to this point, they've been still going to the temple. They've been still making sacrifices. They've been keeping the kosher laws. They've been very Jewish. But now you get a Gentile that gets saved. He doesn't go to the, to the, to the temple. He doesn't make sacrifices. He eats shrimp and cheeseburgers. He doesn't worry about eating kosher. And so what do you do now since it's been Jews who have been saved and Jesus is the Messiah and he's Jewish, what do you do with a Gentile now? Do you make him get circumcised? Do you make him eat kosher? Do you make him keep the law? That will not be settled in chapter 10. We just get the problem introduced by Gentiles getting saved and it will be solved by chapter 15. So we're going to see the gospel spread among Gentile territories. Then we're going to see people that will come up with legalism or Judaizers who want people to keep the law, then the early church will deal with it in chapter 15. Now, in the Old Testament, we're told that, the, that Israel and one of their descendants, the Messiah, is going to bless all nations. Now, think about that. You've got Genesis written and spoken to Abraham and to Moses. This is a long time ago. Abraham is, is uh, 3,500 years ago. And God said that the world is going to be influenced by one of your descendants. And today we have Christianity as the number one religion in the world. Some 4.3 billion people 
are Christians around the world today. At least they're confessing Christians. Now, we don't by any means believe that all 1.3 are genuine Christians. Islam is the second largest group with about 2 billion Islams around the world. But Christianity is outpacing Islam. And there are many that are in Islam who are becoming Christian. God is doing a work among Islamic nations where they are becoming Christians and we're even getting reports of mosques that are turning into churches because Islam's coming to Christ. God's moving in powerful ways really around the world. But let me give you a couple of verses that tell us this prophecy that God was going to use the Jewish people to bless all of the world. Here it is in Genesis 26, 4. This is to Abraham. At this point, Abraham, in, in Genesis 26, I think he has one kid, okay? And it says here, And I will make your descendants and multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all of these lands, which Israel today does not occupy all the lands God promised them. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that word seed there could be translated descendant. In your descendant, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And we know that that descendant is Jesus Christ. We know that there is no one else that has made an effect on the world the way that Jesus did. There are more orphanages and hospitals and ways to help the poor that come out of the Christian community than anywhere else. Exodus 9, 16, God says to Moses, but indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared all around the earth. Now, by the time of Moses, Judaism is still small, but God declares it's going to be declared all around the earth. This is a prophecy that we can look back and see that has come true. Imagine if you were reading this, but Christianity was still very small. God wanted to bless the nations. In fact, do you know that God raised up the nation of Israel so the Gentiles could be blessed? It is not that he didn't want to bless the Jewish people. He raised them up. He called them his people. He said that he loved them. But he called them up so they could be a light that would, inflect the, in, that would uh, affect the Gentile world. And here we are today. Most of us here are, are Gentile. There are some of you that are Jew, Jewish and welcome. We love you. We're really glad you're here. But you're seeing God's effect of why God rose up your people so that Gentiles could be blessed and give their life to him. Let me give you one more. This is Psalm 72, 11. Yes, all the kings shall fall down before him and nations shall serve him. Now, Acts chapter 10 is the point where the dam begins to seep. When, when, when a dam gets a little leak in it, a little bit of water begins to flow through, then engineers realize we've got to take care of things quickly because sooner or later that's going to burst. And sooner or later it burst. And Gentiles came into the kingdom of God in large numbers. And this is the very beginning. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1, we're introduced to this centurion. It says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Now, let's talk about the city of Caesarea, first of all. It is a Roman city, Caesarea by the sea. There's two Caesareas in Israel, Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea Maritime, or Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea by the sea is where Pilate's headquarters were. 
It was a Roman city. There were a few Roman cities built in Israel in their day. There was the Decapolis you read about Jesus ministering to. They were Greek and Roman cities. They had theaters. They had bathhouses. They had hippodromes, things that Roman cities had. And Caesarea had all of that. Jews went into Caesarea, but they didn't spend much time there. There was a hippodrome. Know what a hippodrome is? That's like Ben-Hur. That's where they race chariots around. And if you go to Israel today, one of the first places you'll visit is Caesarea by the sea. You'll see that hippodrome. More impressive to us as Christians is the theater where Paul defended himself against Agrippa, King Agrippa. And we get that in the book of Acts. We'll be there. Paul will be in Caesarea and he'll defend himself before him. Now, also, it's significant that he's from the Italian regiment because not all of the soldiers were from there. When Rome would go into a new area, they would get legionnaires. Those are what Roman soldiers were called. They, these were the guys that would go out and do battle or would keep the peace. And they would get legionnaires from the region because they could speak the language. They were people who they knew. And so they would get them to keep the peace in the area. And right now, and this is for a long time, we have the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. So that the, at, at the perfect time, God sent Christ so people could spread the gospel around the world. And so here's a man from, from the Italian regiment. And he again is a centurion. And his name is Cornelius. Now, centurion uh, commanded between um, 80 and 100 men. The centurion's men were also part of a cohort, which was around 500 men, between 420 to 500 men. There were five centurions that were over a cohort and the senior most centurion was over them all. So everything in the Roman government was put down into regiments, the legionnaire, the, 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 the century that you were a part of, the cohort you were a part of, and then it went up from there uh, until you were you know, a part of the, the army in the entire region. Now, it's interesting that there are a couple of centurions in the Bible, three of them in fact, that positive things are said about. In fact, I was thinking about it. I can't think of a negative thing that was said about any of the centurions that we find in the Bible. We know that Jesus, after going one of his, his trips across the water, I don't know if it was the storm or if it was when he walked on the water, he came back to Capernaum and a centurion meets him and says, my servant is sick. It's interesting that centurions were wealthy enough to have servants. A legionnaire would not be, but a centurion would be. And he said, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. Do you remember what the centurion said? I'm a man of authority. I have people over me and I have people under me. And when I tell them to go, they go and do it. If you speak the word, I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion and said, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And uh, Gentiles are going to come from all around the world and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, there was another centurion that we find, and this is in Matthew 27, 54. This is at the crucifixion. There was a centurion that was in charge of the detail that were crucifying the men that day. And I'm quite sure crucifying Jesus was unlike anything they'd ever done before. He was, first of all, being crucified for sedition, for being a king. That is rare. They put a, a plaque over his head in three different languages, 
king of the Jews. That was rare. Also, if you were a, uh, a soldier, a legionnaire, and you crucified people, you'd heard people beg. You know, if I was going to be crucified, I'd beg. You'd hear people beg, maybe bribe, maybe curse. But they had never heard anyone say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This was unique. And then there was a supernatural darkness on the cross. Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then he dies and there's an earthquake. When that happened, it says in Matthew 27, 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they fervently, excuse me, they feared greatly. So these soldiers feared because this was so distinct, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Now, there's a movie on the life of Jesus called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it's got a lot of old actors in it. It was made in the, I think the early 60s, may even have been the late 50s, but it was, it's, I think, sometime during the 60s. And John Wayne played the centurion, which is a pretty good fit for a centurion. I think if I'm going to cast a centurion, John Wayne's the guy to do that. So John Wayne had this line. And so when Jesus died on the cross, John Wayne said, truly, this was the son of God. That's exactly how he said it. <laughs> but I do think it's a good fit. I think you've got here again, a tough man who is leading tough men. And there's no reason for us to think that a tough man can't get a hold of Christ and make a difference. Now, in verse 2, we're told some more things about this particular centurion, Cornelius. He was a devout man. Now, this means he was serious about whatever he believed. He believed in God. He didn't know much about God. He certainly wasn't Jewish, but he was devout. He wasn't a hypocrite. He didn't believe in one thing and do another. He was a devout man. And then it says, and he feared God with his whole household. And I like that his whole household feared God. I'll take it that this is his family and the servants that he talks about here in a little while. Because when, when, uh, when we get serious about God, men or women, we affect those around us. But there's something about men who get serious about God who can affect the people around them. And that's the case here. It says he gave alms generously. He, he helped the poor. Now, again, he's not a believer. He believes that God is there. He's responding positively to the light that he's been given. He will become a believer, but he's not yet. But he's still helping the poor because just somehow he realizes this is the right thing to do. And he prayed to God always. So he sought the Lord and he prayed to him. But I want you to notice one phrase here in verse two, a devout man and one who feared God. Now, what does it mean to fear God. Proverbs 9:10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be a wise person, then you fear God. And it says and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding. Proverbs 1:7 says something a little different. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the first one was the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of knowledge. You're beginning to grow in the proper knowledge when you fear God, but a fool despises wisdom and instruction. Now, what does it mean to fear God? I, I'll, I'll hear people say this all the time. They'll say things like, 
Well, what it means to fear God is to have a reverence for Him, to have a respect for Him, to be in awe of Him. That's what the fear of the Lord means. I disagree with that. I don't think that's what the fear of God means. I think the fear of God means that God is so holy, so righteous. In Him, there's no shifting of shadows and we have darkness inside of us. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. There's not a person here who can say, uh, sp speak for yourself, Robert, because I haven't. All of us have gone astray. And all of us must stand before God and give an account. Jesus said, for every word you say, every idle word you say, do you really want to stand before God and have to answer for every idle word you've said? How many times have you torn someone down for something that you yourself do? That now God's going to go, well, you knew that was wrong because you talked about them doing it. Then you did the exact same thing that you said that too. No, we should not fear God like we would fear a criminal. When people come up to me and they say, I don't know why I'm supposed to be afraid of God. I'm not afraid of him. I understand what they're saying. We don't fear God like we fear a criminal. It's funny. I can be there with my wife. And I, I, don't have any, I don't have any problem. I hear a noise outside, I'm no, no big deal. I might get up and check on it, but there's no big deal. But what's funny is my wife, when I'm there by myself and my wife's gone and I hear a noise outside, I think, there's a murderer outside. I mean, I'm still the guy that's gonna take care of it. Nothing's changed, but just being by yourself, there's something to it. I'm not saying that's how we fear God, like we would fear a stray dog in our neighborhood that looks like it's rabid. That's not how we're supposed to fear God. I understand why people have that question, but we are to fear God like a judge in whom we will have to stand in front of when we are like sheep who have gone astray. We can't stand confidently before him. God's going to find things out in our lives. And so we fear standing in front of him. It's like if you stood in front of a judge and a judge gave you certain things to do and you're going to stand in front of him again now, and he's going to make a decision as to whether or not he, he lets you go free or puts you in jail based on what you've done, and you realize you haven't done everything the judge said, and you've got some fear as you stand in front of him. Because he could say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and give you that 90 days in jail. And, and you would rather him say, you know what, I'm going to give you a little more time to complete the things I told you that you needed to complete. That's the way we fear him. It's radically different. In Luke 12, 3, it says, Therefore, whatever you speak in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you speak in the inner room will be proclaimed from the housetop. In Ecclesiastes 3, 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, and there is a time for every purpose under the sun. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11. And this is said to Christians. A lot of times Christians want to say, well, we won't, we won't stand before God in the judgment. I believe we will. Listen to what this says. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, as Christians, we're forgiven. The Lamb's book of life is open and our name is in it if we're believers. So I don't think that bad things are going to happen in this judgment. It just means that I'm going to have to stand before him and realize even more so that I need that grace. It goes on to say, Paul says this. Listen to what Paul says. You want to talk about not fearing the Lord? Paul says, therefore, or knowing therefore, 
the terror of the Lord. Paul doesn't even talk about the fear of the Lord. He talks about the terror of the Lord. We persuade men that men will have to stand before God. And because of the terror of the Lord, we want to see people get saved. One day when we see him, he will be much more powerful, much more awesome, much more bright than we could ever imagine. You know, the popular, the most popular worship song there is, is I can only imagine. Right. I can only imagine we'll be back and we all like it when I see him face to face. Look, I don't I can't only imagine what we're going to do. We're going to fall on our face before him for sure. When we see him in all of his glory, because there is no shifting of shadows in him. And we have plenty of shifting shadows in us. And we will realize I cannot stand in his presence. And when we see people standing before or see people even an inkling of God will fall down before him. So that's why he feared God. And the fear of God is a good thing. It's not wrong for you to fear God. You should fear God because you will stand before him as a judge one day. And if you say, well, I'm not afraid of him. Um, I'm going to tell you what Yoda said to Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. You will be. You will be. And I spared you my Yoda impersonation. So verse three, it says, in the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming to him and saying, Cornelius. And when he had observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. Isn't that interesting? The prayers and alms of a non-believer, he's yet to be saved, go up before God and God remembers him. So when you haven't received the full light, but you say, I want to do what's right. And you're helping people. See, non-believers can help people. Sometimes as Christians, we feel like, well, we're the ones who really help people. But non-believers do plenty of good things as well. And when they do them with the right heart, then they go up before God as alms. And God's going to, he responds to the light he's been given and God's going to give him more light. He says in verse five, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, who is surnamed Peter. He doesn't know Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. That's in Joppa. Uh, he will tell you what you must do. So now we have two people in the book of Acts so far who were seeking, responded positively to the light that they had, and God sent them more light. We have the Ethiopian eunuch and we have Cornelius. Now, if you're here today and you don't know God, begin to seek him. And if you respond positively to the light that you have, then God will bring you more of the truth. And what we're interested in is the truth. We're, we're not interested in just selling Christianity if it's not true. We believe wholeheartedly that Christianity is true and there's evidence for it. And if you will respond positively to the light that you have, God will bring you more light and you can, like Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch, end up giving your life to Christ. That's a spoiler alert, by the way, in case you didn't know that Cornelius was going to be the first Gentile to be saved. And don't you love that it's a centurion who's the first Gentile that's saved? I just love the way that God does this. All right. Um, now, in verse seven, we're told, and when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devoted soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So he's got two servants like the the 
soldier in Capernaum who had gotten sick had a servant. Cornelius has servants and he's got a devoted soldier. Maybe he's interested too in the things of God. And so he sends them. So when they, uh, when he had explained all these things, which were, I saw an angel. He told me to go get Simon Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner. Then he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey, they drew near to the city. So now as they're drawing near to the city, God's got some work to do on Peter's end. Because in their day, Jews did not like Gentiles and Gentiles did not like Jews. This is why it's so remarkable that in the rest of the New Testament, it's said over and over again, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles in the sight of God. Because when people are radically different from us, when they come from a radically different culture, somehow we feel that they are different than us. When in reality, they are exactly the same. We are all people created by God and we are the same. And so God's got something to do with Peter because he's been raised Jewish. And he's been raised to think that being Jewish is superior. And so he, he has to, he's gonna have to go into a, a, a Gentile's house. And a good Jewish boy would never do that. So God's got to do something with Peter now. So we pick it up here in the rest of verse nine. Peter went up on the housetop and prayed about the sixth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. Well, that's an experience we've all had, right? But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. That's something I've never had happen to me. I've had that thing happen where all of a sudden you're staring. People are like, oh, yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't think that's the same thing happened to Peter. I think it's something different. He fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound on four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. This is not just kosher food. It's a mixture of non-kosher and kosher food, which Jews are committed to eating kosher. Now, I'm persuaded today that many of the Jews cheat. They'll eat a cheeseburger when they come to America. But when you're in Israel, you can't have a cheeseburger. And I'll explain why at another point why you can't. But when you're in Israel, they have dairy restaurants and they have meat restaurants. And you can't mix the two. And if you ever take your meat plate over into a dairy restaurant, people are not going to be happy with you. They may scream and holler or they just might call you an idiot. That it could be one of it could be one of those two things. I wish I could say I never did it. I wish I could say I didn't go to Israel over 14 times. I don't know exactly. I've lost count and didn't do it the last time I was there. My wife wanted to eat at one restaurant. I wanted to get shawarma. So she got her stuff. I went and got my shawarma, walked to where she was, sat down and began to eat my plate. A guide from another group said to me, um, he said something like, um, this is all about you, isn't it? And I looked at him and I said, I don't even know what this is. I was just being honest. This is all about you. I don't even know what this is. And he goes, well, that explains a lot. And it wasn't until I finished my plate that it dawned on me, this is a dairy restaurant. They're like stupid Americans. Don't even keep, you know, our customs when they when they come over here, you know. So it's very important for them. So on this plate would be shellfish, 
Things like, things like shrimp, which if you're going to eat kosher, you can't have. And if you're one of those Christians who believes you've got to keep the law, then stop eating shrimp, you sinner. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it's delicious. It's too bad for shrimp that God made them so delicious because they are. And he says, rise, kill and eat. And, um, and Peter said, not so, Lord. For nothing, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Like as a side note now, this is for, for another study that we're going to do, but I just want to give you this because this is one of the evidences for it. There are people who believe that when they take communion, that the blood actually turns into the blood of Jesus and you're drinking his blood and the body becomes the flesh of Jesus and you're eating his flesh, okay? It's, it, it's not kosher to do that. You can't eat blood if you are Jewish. That's not kosher. Nor can you eat human flesh. And that's not just not a kosher thing. It's not kosher, but more than that, okay? And so Peter says, no unclean thing has ever entered my lips. So if he'd been taking communion for a while and believed it was the blood and body of Jesus, he could not have said that. So this is one of the evidences that we believe that it is, that is a sign of the blood of Christ and it is a sign of the body of Jesus broken. Now we'll cover that in detail later, but I just wanted to give you this is one of the evidences that we go to for that. That he says, nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. And then a voice spoke to him again the second time and said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So God cleansed these unkosher foods so he could now eat them. Something is changing. The Gentiles are now going to join and they will not be under the law anymore. He goes on to say this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. Now we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. Now this doesn't mean, so the law had 613 laws, okay? Some of the laws were, were moral laws. You shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not murder. Now, because we are not under the law, does that mean I can murder, covet, and steal? No, because Jesus said, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself, then all of the law is fulfilled in these things. If I love you, I won't murder you. It's pretty simple. If I love you, I won't, when something good happens to you, I'm not going to be jealous and covet, right? So the moral law, we are, we, we will keep, but we'll keep it by love, not because we're under the law. We don't have to keep the kosher law, which means later on today, I'm going to have a pig. Not an entire pig, but part of a pig. My wife's actually cooking some, some Mexican meat with a pork roast today, so I really will be eating that because we're not, under the, we're not under the dietary laws and we are not under the ceremonial laws because all 613 of these laws made up these different ceremonial, uh, dietary, and moral. We are not under the ceremonial laws. Why? Because we don't give sacrifices because Jesus became our sacrifice. So he fulfilled it by closing the book on the law by becoming the sacrifice. We don't have a high priest today because Jesus became the high priest that gave the sacrifice. We don't keep the Sabbath because Jesus became our Sabbath. Hebrews chapter four, Jesus said, all of you who are weary, heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. He is our Sabbath. Now let me quickly give you a couple of verses and I need to wrap things up here. In 
Matthew 5, 18, it says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle, this he means the law, will by any means pass away until the law is fulfilled. Now you might wonder, and this is quoted by people saying we, that we're still under the law. But listen to the NASB version. And if you're a Bible student, the NASB version is the best version to study from. Here's what it says. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a smallest letter or stroke of the letter shall pass the law until it is accomplished. So Moses opened the book on the law, but Jesus shut the book on the law by accomplishing the things in the law for us. He never sinned. He kept the law completely. And now we are set free from it. Listen to what the Bible says. This is so clear. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. That's a hard passage to argue with because it's not complicated. When it says you are not under the law, to hear people go, well, I know it says we're not under the law, but there, there's, there's hard to have a but with that. Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I don't have to follow the law because I'm now led by the Spirit. I'm doing the things God wants me to do, being led by the Spirit, and so are you, so you don't have to keep the law. Let me give you one more. This is uh, Galatians 3, 23 and 25, through 25. But before faith, we were kept under guard by the law. So before faith, we live by faith now, but before that, the law was like a guard. Don't do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That was the law, it was a guard. Then he says this, another analogy. It says, which afterwards he revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was like a schoolmaster. I learned that I'm a lying, thieving, blasphemer because I've lied in my life, I've stolen things in my life, and I've blasphemed God in my life. So under the law, I'm guilty. So the law was a schoolmaster to teach me that I couldn't stand before God. But then it says that we might be justified by faith, by, um, by faith but faith has come and we no longer need the tutor. So now once I've come to him by faith, I no longer need the law because by love, I'm keeping it. If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself, then I'm keeping the law and I'm no longer under the law. Now, three things in closing. Number one, we have in the Bible, in the Old Testament, early on in Genesis, a prediction that the Messiah would affect the Gentiles and all nations. And that's exactly what we see. And as you spend time studying the Bible, especially those Old Testament prophecies, you're going to see that they are fulfilled exactly as they said that they are. And it's hard to fight against that because if, if the, the following the Jewish Messiah had not become something done worldwide, then we would go, well, that wasn't fulfilled. But it's something that's done worldwide. Number two, the fear of the Lord is not a bad thing. If you say, I'm not afraid of God, you should be. Because one day you will stand before him. And that ought to affect the way that you live. We affect the way that, the way that I drive is affected by police officers on the road. 
driving over here. I'm coming close to a red light. It starts to turn yellow. I'm running late. Shocking, I know. Well, we have two campuses. So I'm, I did the first campus. I'm driving over. I get close to a light, and I think I can probably make it. And out of my eye, I catch a cop car right on the front thing. I hit the brakes because of fear. I thought I could make, I think I can make this. I think I, think I can get in the intersection before and then hit my brakes once I'm in the intersection. It's just kind of, but then I see the cop and I realize it. Hey, the, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It keeps us from killing ourselves in a red light. <laughs> Number three, the Judaizers who are Jews who want to keep the law and the legalists who are Gentiles who tell us we have to keep the law are still around today. Don't let them steal your freedom and put you back under the law. Some, and I, and I think, I don't know why it's so popular, but there are always new groups arising that believe you have to keep the law. And I think it's popular because you feel like self-accomplished when you keep the law. It's like, well, you know what? I, don't, I eat kosher. And so I know God favors me. That's funny because the Bible says God doesn't favor you because you eat kosher that God favors those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ and that we are not saved by any works lest we boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so don't let anyone steal it from you. When someone tells me, you know, you really need to keep the law and I want to show you why, I always tell them, I'm not going to let you steal my freedom. That's my line. I'm not going to let you steal my freedom in Christ. I have freedom in Christ and I'm not under the law and I'm not, going, I'm not going back under that Old Testament law which could not save you according to the book of Hebrews. But Christ can save to the uttermost. He saves completely. What could the law do? It could keep you until Christ came and once Christ comes, we no longer need the law. Now there's more I want to say but I can't so stand up with me would you please? I have another I got to drive back across town and not run a red light while I do it. So pray with me, would you? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather here today to consider this amazing account of this centurion who comes to faith in you. And Lord, we pray that you would prepare us as we come next week or the week after next to hear how this centurion ends up becoming a Christian and what an amazing thing it is. I also pray for those here today who have never made a commitment to you. I pray that you would touch their hearts, give them boldness, that they would make a commitment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.